Bible to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. As we're continuing in our verse-by-verse -verse exposition, we'll be looking at verses 8, 9, and 10 today with the sermon title, The Supremacy of Jesus Christ Over Philosophy. The Supremacy of Jesus Christ Over Philosophy. We're in Colossians chapter 2. This great letter the apostle is writing. The theme is the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, that there was um, a certain uh, heresy that had begun to creep into the church that Paul is writing um, to warn the church lest they be beguiled as Satan did indeed beguile the woman in the garden. And so this is a warning letter really, uh, but there's so much glorious truth about Christ in this in this letter that it's overwhelmingly joyful for me in the study and I pray that it is for you as you're listening to the Word of God to see your Savior high and lifted up and that His glory is filling the temple. Starting in verse 8, this is the Word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. What a glorious passage. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing upon the preaching of the Word this morning. And as I'm praying, please pray for me that the Lord would use me as an instrument to speak with clarity to His glory. Lord, I just come to you, Lord, and ask that you would work your work in us as the inerrant, infallible, inspired words being preached. Lord, may I be used as a spokesman to proclaim the truths that have been revealed to us in the inerrant scriptures. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, may the work be of God as it's being fashioned and formed in our hearts and our lives. Mold us to our Redeemer, whoever lives now and is seated at the, at the right hand of the Father. Make us more like Him. Lord, work Your work. Lord, transform us, Lord, even from one image to another, from one glory to another, that we might be godly in Christ. Work Your work. Sanctify us. Make us more like our beloved Redeemer. So, Lord, speak to us today. Your servant listens. And we ask it in Christ. Amen. So the Apostle Paul here is writing and arguing that this certain philosophy that was creeping into the church at Colossae was in fact harmful and detrimental, more than that, even deceitful. So what is philosophy? The word simply, simply means the love and the pursuit of wisdom. It's a compound word in the original. Uh, the Greek word phileo is the... Is the um, uh, the basic word with the prefix uh, Sophia. So it really means the love of wisdom. Sophia is the word in the Greek for wisdom, and phileo is a word that means to love. So it's to love wisdom. Philosophy seeks to answer the big questions of life, like what is the purpose of life? What is its meaning? Why is there evil in this world? And even what is the prospect of life after death? So in some way, philosophy concerns itself for, or it, even it can be a quest for, ultimate truth. You know, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there's been an ongoing battle within the Reformed community that's really split the Reformed camp right down the middle. It's caused good brothers to split and relationships 
to come to a halt. This battle and this division has caused the ban of certain godly ministers from speaking platforms, and the battle is over philosophy. But more specifically, the battle concerns itself over a theological philosophy that would arise in the 13th century from a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. And the divide that's taking place is philosophical, and it's over the Thomistic idea of theology proper or the doctrine of God. The split or the division in, is really in regards to what's been called theology proper. Who is God? And it's over really what's called divine simplicity. Divine simplicity. This idea regards the attributes of God or the parts, if you will, and how that relates to the essence of God. And I know and I'm understanding that probably for most of you, you have never even heard of Thomas Aquinas or any of this philosophical theology that he promoted so many hundreds of years ago. But the argument at its crux centers upon whether God's essence is made up of quote-unquote parts or that God's essence is without parts, i.e. simplicity. Thomas Aquinas was heavily influenced by the philosophy of Aristotle and that his categories, as I understand them, were distinctly derived from the philosophy or philosophical system of Aristotle. But my argument today uh, particularly is not over that particular argument, but that the philosophy itself is causing a breach of unity within the Reformed community of good men that have become at odds with one another, that good brothers have become separated over philosophy, and that the Reformed community lays smoldering underneath the fires of this heated battle over philosophy. My good friend James White that's spoken here many, many times calls this battle the downgrade of Reformed Christians of the century. Now I realize that there is a, there's, this is a scholarly battle and I'm not going to be talking about Thomism and what all it constitutes, but the issue I am, is, am, am trying to show us this morning is, is that a philosophy has crept into the church and has divided good men. Colossae was a hodgepodge of systems of philosophy. It was a merger of Greek and Jewish and pagan ideas and philosophies. And even though the Apostle Paul doesn't forthrightly identify the Colossian heresy, quote-unquote, he gives us enough information within the divine scripture to help us understand that the heresy was a compilation of legalism, asceticism, mysticism, docetism, and early Gnosticism. And I know with all those isms that y'all are probably thinking, that sounds terrible. And it was. Because it was not of Christ. Because it was beginning to 
creep in and to deceive because it was detracting from the reality of the crucified, exalted, and enthroned Savior. And at the root of their philosophical system was a perversion of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I know that many in that error were blatantly denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. That was part of docetism, even early Gnosticism, that they did not believe that Christ had a corporal body. They had a belief system that believed fundamentally that all physical matter was intrinsically evil, that if Christ in their mind's eye had a physical corporal body, then it would have been evil and they couldn't rationalize that. And so they began in their philosophies to deny the sufficiency of Christ to save. These errors or these philosophies were aimed at the heart of the gospel. These are damning errors, my friend. This is not some secondary issue. This is not some inconsequential matter. These are errors of eternal significance. Philosophies that chisel away at the gospel. Philosophies that cut away at the deity and even the humanity of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So Paul now is writing to showcase the superiority of Christ over human philosophy. Note in verse 8 the dangers of philosophy. It's very easy to see the apostle warning very poignant language that is being given here in the text. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul has previously warned in verse 4 about the dangers of the persuasive arguments of these liars. He gave the antidote in verse 7 of chapter 2 that we're to be firmly rooted and built up in Him. And I think I've said this once or twice before in the history of my ministry, that the, the, the need that we have to correct error is nothing more than truth. We don't need to talk about the error, but we need to, to give the truth in love. I've said it many times that during my years as a detective and going to training with the, uh, the federal government to learn how to identify false bills, uh, false notes, false $100 bills. We wouldn't study the false ones. We would study the true bills so that whenever a, a forged instrument came before us, we would be able to identify it by knowing the truth. And that is the way that as Christians, we recognize error, that we know what the Word of God teaches. That doubles down on the reality that you need to be in the Word of God every day that you need to spend time in the scriptures, that you need to be a good Berean and search out what saith God upon these things. But that there was a danger through these philosophies of men that were creeping into the church. And I want you to note here in verse 8, whenever the apostle talks about this philosophy, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, the definite article is used there. In the Greek language, and what does that mean, Pastor Derek? It, it literally means a unique philosophy, a particular philosophy. It would be rightly said in the text, see to it that no one takes you captive through the philosophy, the particular philosophy, a particular or a certain kind, a subversive, subtle religious philosophy that was creeping into the church that's very deceptive. Now, I do want to say that 
that Paul's not talking about all philosophy. There was a particular certain philosophy. There are philosophies out there that can be helpful. So he's not saying that all philosophy is intrinsically evil. We can't stretch the scripture to say or to mean that because he has the definite article and he's talking about a certain belief or a certain tradition or mindset or belief that was being practiced that was undermining the gospel and minimizing the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just put it this way. Any philosophy that does not submit itself to biblical revelation is erroneous. That philosophy must never rise above and contradict what God says in Holy Scripture. That the wisdom of God always trumps the wisdom of man. A couple of features about this philosophy, the apostle writes and says to us that this is a dangerous philosophy because it enslaves. You note here in the first part of verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. This is the only place in the entire Bible where this language is used. It's a very powerful Greek term that has the idea of carrying someone off as booty or as a slave or as a spoil of war. It has the idea of an army going and marching into a foreign territory and warring against another army and dragging away slaves captive. That's the idea that Paul is using here. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. This particular philosophy that the apostle is dealing with here is a dangerous one. Why is that? Because it enslaves men by minimizing the lordship and supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ who frees and liberates his people from their sins. This was the attack on the forefront there at Colossae. It was upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I don't think I need to say much about this, but I will just quickly mention it, that we are living in a time in a church age to where the sufficiency of the Word of God and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save is under attack. Listen, beloved, Jesus Christ is sufficient to save. He is sufficient to carry out the Father's purpose and grace. He's sufficient to conquer Satan, and he has already done that on the cross 2,000 years ago. And here the apostle Paul wants to, to, to undergird that with a strong emphasis and an amen that Christ is what we need and not philosophy. Now, here we see in verse 11 that, that, that this particular sect was trying to add circumcision as a means of salvation. Well, yes, you need Jesus, but also you need to be circumcised to be a real Christian. That's what the Judaizers would teach and preach. Yes, Jesus is good, but you know, you need a little bit more than Jesus to put you than, than Jesus to put you over the edge and to be right with God. So you need to go and have some certain piece of, of your body cut away as a means of salvation. And then you scroll on down to verse 16, you see that some of the Erroneous ideas being purported was that you got to add these special days to celebrate them and special foods and drinks as a means of salvation. And then in verse 18, the self-abasement or asceticism is what you need. You need to deny yourself of certain things that God has indeed granted for our enjoyment. No, no, you can't do that. You need to deny yourself any sense of pleasure. 
even though God would permit it in Scripture. No, you can't do that. You need to deny that pleasure because if you do that, then you can truly be religious and saved. And I think some of the danger is, is in the religious language and the religious slant of the ideologies that they use. Obviously, this coincides with the natural man's bend that wants to work for his salvation. But note that underlying this philosophy that Paul is dealing with is the idea that Jesus' atonement was insufficient to save his people. They were teaching that a further work was needed. They were teaching that some mystical experience was to be sought that certain foods or drinks were to be denied, that circumcision was to be received. And listen, these things don't liberate men. They capture men. They enslave men. It's a tragedy. It's undermining the reality of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the work that he was assigned by his Father, and that was accomplished on the cross. It cuts at the very heart of what Christ has done to liberate his people. It brings us back underneath bondage once again. They were enslaved by philosophy. This is not something that is foreign to us in our experience. We see this from time to time when we witness young men riding their bicycles with white shirts, attempting to work and to earn a salvation that can't be garnered by work. They're enslaved trying to gain by doing what Christ has gained by providing freely for those that look to him and trust him. There are also those that go door to door trying to work their way into heaven by peddling their lies underneath the banner of truth itself. They're liars. They are coming to bring other men into captivity. They are going to and fro over the whole earth to make men twice more the sons of hell than they themselves are. And they're ensnared. There are those that restrict foods and drinks that have been meant by God to be enjoyed, that are sanctified, Paul says to Timothy, by thanksgiving and by prayer in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verses 3 through 5. They're snared by restrictions. They're doing the very thing that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in Matthew 23, 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Grace Life, listen. Anything that you add to the Christian faith enslaves you. It denigrates the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save. It heaps up heavy burdens upon men that have not been given by Christ. This is a philosophy that binds men. It does not liberate them. Paul spoke of the Judaizers in Galatians 4, 9. He says, but now having known God, or rather having been known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you want to be enslaved all over again? Jesus Christ did not come to enslave us. He came to liberate us. He came to free us. The second feature is that this philosophy is dangerous, according to the Apostle Paul, by the wisdom of God, because it is deceptive and it deceives. Again, verse 8, look at it with me. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or drags you off as a spool or a booty of war and empty deception. You see it? 
Deception here in the original language has the idea of fraud, taking you captive by trickery, taking you captive through deceit. And I've said this before, and I wanted to say it again, that falsehood is not believed because it's outlandish. Falsehood is believed because there's an appeal to it. There's a charm about it. There's a fascination with it. There is an intrigue to it. Mind you, Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself, and that is his strategy. That is his tactic. He's been deceiving for thousands of years, and he's good at what he does. This deception is twofold in Scripture. Note with me in verse 8, they are deceived by, it says in the Scriptures, the tradition of men. They are deceived by man-made traditions. Do you see it in verse 8? Through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. I like what John MacArthur said about this, that tradition usually serves merely to perpetuate error. The idea of tradition is something that is just handed down. That's the idea in the original language. They put the validity premised upon its practice beforehand. It continues to find its place in being practiced, not because of the truth of the matter, but because it's just been done that way. It's been practiced before, and that's the idea of this word tradition. I remember asking a dear friend of mine, a Southern Baptist and well-respected preacher friend, why his denomination gave deacons in that denomination the role and status and function as an elder. His response was this, well, brother, that's just, why, that's just how we do it. It's tradition. That in that denomination, that that tradition had become a, col- a golden calf to them. Listen, God has defined the roles in Scripture for a reason. Deacons are to do the work of deacons. Elders are to do the work of elders. And you can't switch all of that up. God has a purpose for what he does. And then I think of some of my dear Presbyterian brothers that I love with all of my heart, and I ask them, why do you baptize babies? Whenever the Bible clearly and candidly says that baptism is a believer's ordinance. And there's just not any biblical warrant, nor is there justification for it. I would say it's just tradition. It's tradition handed down from Catholicism. Paul warned the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Listen to this. He says, examine all things. How do we examine them? In light of biblical revelation. He says, but hold fast to what is good. What is good? This is good. The scriptures are good. There are only rule for faith and practice. So the emphasis of man-made traditions is not the word really tradition, but it's the man-made part of it. It's been birthed in the brains of men. It's been carried on in tradition that has been forged out by not divine revelation, but humanistic ideas. Listen to the J.B. Phillips translation. He's, He's very pithy and he's very funny. He's very powerful and insightful in his translation. He says in the same text of verse eight, listen to what he says, be careful that nobody spoils your faith through intellectualism or high sounding nonsense. 
Such stuff is at best founded on men's ideas of the nature of the world and it disregards Christ. So the Colossian heresy, whatever it may have been, had for its authority tradition. Whereas the Lord's church has what for our authority? The infallible rule of the scriptures themselves. Greek scholar Marvin Vincent wrote regarding this text, verse 8, the term is especially appropriate to Judeo-Gnostic teachings in Colossae, which depended for their authority, listen, he says, not on ancient writings, but upon tradition. God forbid that the Lord's church would say, well, we do this just because we do this and not because thus saith the Lord. I believe that the regulative principle is critical here that God not only tells us what we worship, we worship him, but how we are to worship him as well. I don't believe that anywhere in the scripture do we have permission to write our own syllabus on how we do church, that God defines how the church is to be structured and ran by the wisdom of the mind and the genius of God and not by men's ideas. But remember with me, beloved, that religion is a very formidable foe. It's a powerful force. It can be very deceptive. Some of you have been deceived by religious traditionalism. Maybe in time past you've bought into and believed that you were saved because you prayed a sinner's prayer or you walked the golden aisle or maybe you believed the lies of the word of faith camp like I did. And that their truthfulness of what they present is upon the tenuredness of what they're saying and not the infallible rule of Scripture. The Roman Catholic system is conflated with these unbiblical traditions. They boast of legitimacy of what they're doing, that we're doing it and it's legitimate because we have a tradition and that tradition is infallible. This language should frighten you. They pay penance for sin, not because it's biblical, but because it's their tradition. They pray to Mary, not because it's biblical, but because it's tradition. They deitize the Pope, not because it's biblical, but because it's tradition. I did some research on this. A young man doing a dissertation in, on the Council of Trent, which is Roman Catholic theology, wrote this. Listen to this. This ought to send chills down your spine. Scripture and tradition function as two distinct sources of revelation. You find a problem with that? That tradition serves as a source of revelation? Church, listen, what is the source of divine revelation? What is divine revelation? What is revelation? It's thus saith the Lord. It's what God has said. It is revelation that has been given to us in the scriptures. Let me pick back up. He writes, tradition contains part of revelation that is not contained in any way in scripture, making scripture insufficient regarding truths that are necessary for salvation. That's the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, the Bible's good, 
But our traditions are equally inspired and they function as a source of divine revelation. This is ultimate deception, isn't it? The next thing is, not only are they deceived by man-made traditions, but also in verse 8, we see they're deceived by worldly principles. Look at it again in verse 8 with me. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Expositors just wrestle with what they think is an ambiguity in Pauline language here. But the Greek word here is stusion, and it has the idea of things that are in a row, things in a an arranged sequence, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's the idea. It has an, the idea of a series of worldly ideas and principles. I was listening to MacArthur preach this, and he says, it's baby talk. <laughs> it's a worldview that's cultivated apart from divine revelation. Listen. I believe that this is the thinking process that's lined up with certain data, but it's absent of divine truth. It's absent of divine revelation. I think J.B. Phillips translates it rightly. Men's ideas of the nature of the world and disregards Christ. Men's ideas of the nature of the world. These are ideas that arise within the mind of man that are not guided by nor informed by divine revelation. That all that guides these principles held by these men are within the grasp of the natural man apart from the Spirit of God. Remind you that 1 Corinthians 2.14 is forevermore true that the natural man cannot appraise the things of the Spirit of God. He is unable They are natural. They are earthly men. And their line of thinking, the A, B, C, D, the one, two, three, four, albeit systematic and maybe orderly, is not in accords with divine revelation. It's absent of the divine quality of authoritative speech from God. Their worldview is carnal. Their worldview is naturalistic. Well, let me just say this succinctly, that divine revelation, not man's philosophy, but God's truth places Christ at the front and center of everything in reality. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. He is the point. He is the beginning and the middle and the end of divine revelation. The scriptures speak of me, says the Lord Jesus Christ in John 5, 39. So in, re- in divine reality, in God's wisdom, everything is Christocentric. Are you listening? That in reality, in the wisdom of God, all things are Christ-centered. But with man's wisdom, everything is man-centered. 
The philosophy of man starts with man and goes forward. Divine revelation begins with God. It begins with God. Thus saith the Lord. So this line of thinking of the natural man is not in accords with Christ. And that's what the apostle is writing there at the end of our text. Not according to Christ. It's according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and it's not in accords with Christ. It's A, B, C, one, two, three, the natural man doing his thing, but it has, listen, it starts with man, it finishes with man, but God says all things are from him, through him, and to him. Divine wisdom is Christ-centered. It's not in accords with Christ. So let me ask you a question just to make sure you're still awake. What do you call it whenever you live life out of harmony with God's revealed purpose for reality? You call it deception. That whenever you live life out of harmony with God's revealed purpose for life, that is called deception, and that's what Paul's saying to us, that this philosophy that was being promoted among the Colossians is purely and exclusively natural. It's elemental of the things of this world. It is not Christological, and if it misses Christ as the maxim of all reality, it's nothing more than deception. Because Christ is the sum and the substance of all true reality. And not man's brains. That's why this battle that is ongoing within the philosophical minds of some reformed theologians is really breaking my heart because they're missing the point. They're disrupting the harmony and the unity of the blood-bought body of Christ that they're exalting philosophy above divine revelation. That in so many of these reformed camps of, of, of of scholarship to be called a biblicist is embarrassing to them. That they'd rather be identified as a philosopher. They'd rather be identified with Thomas Aquinas. And I say, God forbid, let the church stand on divine revelation and let the Catholics have their heroes. Note Paul in verses 9 and 10 in answering this issue of philosophy gives to us its antidote. And the antidote to human philosophy is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the champion. Have any of y'all taken courses on philosophy? It's one of the most confusing. Your head swims. It really has a unique way of making you feel really stupid. But you do all this mind-boggling thinking, and you know what's missing in the equation? Christ. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Or ch or, I'm sorry, verse 3. In Christ is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All. 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 You know what all means? It means all. Not some, not part, not maybe. In Christ is hidden all of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. So once again in verses 9 and 10, let's look at it. 
For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. It's a very powerful, one of the most glorious passages of Scripture pertaining the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this to answer godless worldviews and human philosophies. If you want to be wise, if you want to have true knowledge, you've got to know Christ. Christ is the answer to all the big questions in life. Why, does, why is there a creation? Because of Christ. Why is there a recreation? Why is there a new birth? It's for the glory of Christ. What is the ultimate purpose of evil? Why does evil exist? For the exaltation of Christ, to demonstrate the mercies of Christ. What's the ultimate purpose of eternity that we might celebrate Christ? So, beloved, listen, there is no human philosophy that can outpurpose what God has designed to be central to his son and the glorious purpose of God in grace through his son. No human philosophy can outpurpose what God has designed. Who do we think we are? The Colossian heresy, as Paul's working his way through this, aimed to gut the divine purpose and reality that is exclusive to him. That they were reducing the glorious purpose of God to mere human speculations, to one, two, three, A, B, C, child's chatter. And Paul now wants the believers there in Colossae to be marinated in a Christ-centered worldview, truth, and divine purpose. So from verse 9 all the way to verse 23, the Apostle Paul goes on a Christ-centered tirade, extolling the centrality, extolling the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I, you, it's not hard to see. There is an, a, the Apostle Paul is very, very strong. There's a polemical nature to this. There's a, there's a confrontational confronting the error of these, of these heretics and Proclaiming the truth of the centrality of Christ to the Colossian church. Paul wants Colossae to know, now listen, and you and I need to know this, that Jesus Christ is the very zenith of knowledge and wisdom, and it's certainly not found in philosophy. Christ is the answer to the mysteries of life. He's the antidote to the poison of philosophy. <laughs> Christ is superior to philosophy. Number one, we see Christ is superior to philosophy because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. Verse 9, look at it with me. Just quickly, we're moving quickly through this. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness, the pleroma, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Think about the context that these liars, these false teachers were promoting a religious system that was requiring mystical experiences circumcision, asceticism. That means asceticism that you're denying yourself of any pleasure, any enjoyment in life. You got to worship angels. You got to worship them if you're going to work your way up the ladder to have the full Gnostic experience. It was a Jesus plus theology. Now listen, Jesus was part of their system but Jesus was just one step among other steps to get you where you need to be. 
You see it? And that was their philosophy. That was, was the tradition that was being handed down. This was the, the worldview that they was espousing. But Paul now goes to the heart of the matter, and he says Christ is not a step towards salvation, brothers. Christ is salvation. And again, one of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture, I maintain, of the deity of Jesus Christ is given here. And I, th I would encourage you to memorize it and to hold this dear because it will serve you well in the future that in Christ all of the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That whenever the modern day version of the Aryan named the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and tell you that Jesus Christ is not divine, that is not God incarnate, you can step up with the truth. Well, the Bible tells us in Colossians 2.9 that in Christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Kenneth Vluce, the Greek expert, said Christ is the fountainhead of all spiritual life. The word fullness here is an important word. I mentioned it a while ago. It's the pleroma in the original Greek. It means completeness. It means totality and quantity. It means the full measure of the Godhead is in Christ. Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus is equal to the Holy Spirit. He is fully God. He's not just like God. He is God. He's not one step of many steps to salvation. He is salvation. There's no improving upon Jesus. The Hebrew writer says he's the author and finisher of our faith. The Hebrew author says he is the exact representation of the nature of the Father. And that there, listen, there is no need for esoteric knowledge, knowledge that is out there somewhere that comes down on top of me. Because in Christ, in the person of Christ, the God-man, who the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ is the fullness of wisdom and the fullness of knowledge. I don't need an experience. I need to know Christ. I don't need a new revelation. I need to know Christ. I don't need some esoteric mystical experience. I need Christ. I don't need to deny myself the very things that God has blessed if I'm to Partake with gratitude and thanksgiving. God has given me all things to enjoy if I thank him and honor and worship him. That all is given in Christ. You cannot work to add to the fullness of Christ. It's an insult to God. Ephesians 3.20 says he does far abundantly above all that we can ask or think. I like the Phillips translation, and he nails it again in verse 9. Yet it is in Christ that God gives a full and complete expression of himself. Scholar William Hendrickson wrote, Since therefore all the fullness of the indwelling essence of God is thus completely concentrated in Christ... There is no need of or justification for looking elsewhere for help, salvation, or spiritual perfection. There's no need to look elsewhere because it's in him. The fullness of deity is in him, in Christ. Let me ask you a few questions. What is the aim of your life? What is it that you value the most? 
What is it that your life is in pursuit of? What is it that captures your deepest affections, your love, your loyalty? Because if it's not Jesus Christ, you've believed a lie and you have capitulated to a lesser pursuit or a lesser aim, just like the, the heretics at Colossae. Beloved, listen, Jesus is better. What are you going after with your life? If it's not Christ, you're going for something lesser. That in him is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is the fullness of joy. And his, pleasures are, and his presence is the, is the fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It says in Psalm 1611. Paul wants the believers in this local church called Colossae to, re, to realize the, the glory of Christ, the worth of Christ, the treasure of Christ. He's the pearl of great price that they might pursue him. All of these heretics are saying is taking away from Christ who is sufficient. In him is fullness. In him is wisdom. In him is purpose. In him is joy. In Christ is life. Why, why are you chasing a fraud? Why are you chasing that which binds? Whenever God's given you Christ. The second feature in verse 10, that Christ is superior to philosophy because our fullness is found in Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, and in him you have been filled, who is the head of, over all rule and authority. The New American Standard says, and in him you have been made complete. Either word works right there. I mean, it's, it both give the, the sense of the original. The Greek word there is pleru, is the verb form of pleroma, the noun form. It just means this. It means to make full, to complete, or to accomplish. And this is really important the false teachers, as I remind you again, were teaching that their, their fulfillment was found in their philosophy. They were teaching that completion, to be a, a completed or a, a fulfilled person, you must go through their multi-strand system of philosophy. You need to have certain experiences. You need to deny certain enjoyments. You need to follow certain ceremonies if you're to have the full life. And Paul says, to all of it, it's refuse. Our fullness is in him. We are made complete in Christ. You'll not suffer any lack if you're in him. This life of fulfillment that these heiress were teaching was putting completeness out in front of you somewhere. It's kind of like the proverbial carrot in front of the donkey. You see it, you walk towards it, but you never get to eat the carrot. It was an empty, hollow, vain, hopeless, deceptive system that kept fullness out of your reach way out there somewhere. You've got to have enough gnosis, enough esoteric knowledge, enough of these transcendental experiences, enough of this, enough of that, deny yourself of this, add a little of that, oh, by the way, go get circumcised tomorrow. 
And the more that they would work, the more miserable that they would come. And Christ says, Paul says, enough with it. You need the fullness of Christ. In Christ is fullness. In Christ is completion. What you need is not all of these worldly philosophies and the traditions of men. You need Christ. And we know this. The fullness of our salvation, the most glorious view of life, the most wonderful prospect of the future in heaven is consummated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And apart from Christ, there's incompleteness. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no purpose. Apart from Jesus Christ, there's hollow, empty pursuits. The life that's centered upon Jesus Christ is a full life. Upon Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Listen, philosophy cannot satisfy, it cannot fulfill. Philosophy cannot be objective, it cannot be beautiful. The great philosopher of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, called Christianity a religion of weaklings. He's the one that said, God is dead. But think about the last 11 years of Nietzsche's life. He went insane. He lost his mind. A man that spent all of his time and musings on philosophical ideas. The last 11 years was an, an insane man. He became an imbecile. To me, it speaks loudly about the direction that philosophies of men will take you. And it also contrasts the glories and excellencies of the God-man Jesus Christ and where he will lead us whenever we are his people. That the fullness is in him. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. The fullness of deity is in Christ bodily. And I think Paul put bodily there for a reason because in that system of docetism that that corporal nature of Christ was denied. And they said, no, it's in Christ bodily. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now and you can touch him with your hands. You can see him with your eyes. You can touch the nail print in his hands. You can put your hand in his side where the spear went. He is physical in heaven and never again to be not physical. And when we go there, we will see him. One day, beloved, even though your body will go into the earth, you will die a physical death. God will raise up your body and you will forever live embodied with a glorified body in heaven and you will see the glorified son of God. So whenever a person becomes a Christian, they receive, listen to me, the fullness of Christ. You do not need a second work of grace. Through faith in Christ, we receive his fullness. You don't need a second gear Christianity. You don't need a, some supposed second work of grace or baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues, traditions of men. The fullness of Christ is by faith in him at regeneration. Whenever you are adjusted in the eyes of God, when you become a Christian, when you are born from above, you have the fullness of Christ. 
John 1.16, for of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Let me ask you, beloved, what are you building your life upon? Are you building your life upon the revelation of God or the musing of fools? The riches found in Christ are the ABC, one, two, three, found in the folly of men's minds. Lastly, before I dismiss, let me quickly say and cover verse 10, Christ is superior to philosophy because his rule and authority are universal. You see that? Verse 10, look at it with me and we'll be done. And in him you have been filled, who is what? The head, the kephale. He is the head over all rule and authority. Any step away from Christ is a declension. Any step away from Christ is a step down. And, and by the way, it's a slippery step down. Christ is preeminent. He is first in authority. He is higher in rank above all else. He has ultimate authority in the cosmos. And every other system of belief is beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the sum and the substance of all reality. He's the head and the rule over all authority. The word head here literally means pre of preeminent status or superior. There's no system of man that equals what Christ has revealed to us in the gospel. Everything else is sinking sand. A, B, C, D. One, two, three. Why worship angels? Christ is the head over them and he rules them. Why listen to human philosophy? Christ's gospel is truth that is eternally superior to any philosophical ideas or conjectures of men. Why circumcision? The cleansing that comes through Christ to our filthy hearts transcends any right of man to which it pointed. Why do we refrain from food and drink? These were all shadows that are consummate in Christ that pointed to him, that the partial has given way to the fullness. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, that Christ is better than the things you used to do. He's better than your sacrifices. He's better than your priesthood. He's eternally better. He's better. He's better. That's what the book teaches. And that's what Paul is reinforcing He's preeminent. He's first in rank. There's no other purpose. There's no other occasion. There's no other person that's higher than Jesus Christ and his gospel. He is sovereign over all. He is the preeminent one. He rules all things in his creation and that his authority is first in rank and it is an ultimate authority. So is he the Lord of your life? Is he front and center to your agenda? Is divine truth foremost in your life? Are you submissive to his rule and his reign? Have you bowed your knee to his supremacy? Listen, beloved, he is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form that Christ is transcendent to human philosophy. He is transcendent to any human tradition. He trumps our human knowledge that is so puny and embarrassing. And if you're not in Christ, you cannot be complete. If you're not in Christ, you're wrecked underneath the curse of Adam. You're wrecked underneath the judgment of God. The wrath of God abides upon you. He is, listen, Christ is head over all. 
has given his life that we might be complete in him. But this is only for those who've believed. It's only for those who have humbled themselves and gone through that narrow way, Christ alone. What a glorious truth, timely in the life of the church. Let us hold to Christ. He's transcendent. He's worthy. Well, Lord, we're so thankful for every word that comes down from you. Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would take these truths and nail them to the mast of our heart, that we might love the truth, that we might eschew evil, that we might cling to the old rugged cross, that we might believe into Christ, that we might love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, that we might yield ourselves to you, that we might love you above all else, that we might submit to your rule and reign. Lord, I pray for unbelievers here today, Lord, that you would show them that Christ is sufficient to save. If they will look and call upon Christ, that you will save them to the utmost, that there is nothing lacking in your power. There's nothing lacking, Lord, in your ability to save, that all of those who call upon your name shall be saved. Lord, may many today believe, may many call upon the glorious Christ to save Lord, we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.